Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. If you have a Bible, I invite you to uh, grab it or uh, get your device. And would you stand with me as we read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, from verses 6 down to verse 16. And let's talk about uh, what Paul says here about watching our life and doctrine closely. 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 6. It is such an honor to be with you today. Let's read this text and pray together. Paul writes, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father. As we often pray, not mindlessly, but from our hearts today, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Thank you much. You may be seated. Well, I, like many of you, am a really big Charles Spurgeon fan. I think I probably have more books that bear his name than any other author. I have a wooden Spurgeon head uh, on my on, in my bookcase, pictures on the wall. And I know that it, it might, may even sound idolatrous, but I, I don't worship the Spurge. Um, but, but there are many days in which I wish he would talk to me. And I think if Spurgeon could address us today, there is a chance that he would address us from First uh, Timothy 4, verse 16. Because in Spurgeon's famous lectures to my students, The very first lecture that you find there is entitled, The Minister's Self-Watch, and it's a reflection on 1 Timothy 4.16. Spurgeon says in that particular lecture, we have all heard the story of the man who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everyone said he ought never come out again. And when he was out of it, they all declared that he should never enter it again. Our characters must be more persuasive than our speech. Or perhaps he would address us from verse 15, because Spurgeon also, in lectures to my students, has a lecture entitled, The Necessity of Ministerial Progress. 
Well, as cool as it would, to, uh, would be to, to hear Spurgeon lecture us today, we actually have something better. We have Paul's lectures to his students, Timothy and Titus. We know them as the pastoral epistles. And in the passage that we just read, Paul exhorts Timothy to faithfulness, both in his public ministry of the word and with his personal example as well. This text is all about life and doctrine. I love the heading in the, in the ESV, a good servant of Christ Jesus. He's going to list for us good, ser- good qualities, qualities of good servants or good ministers of Christ Jesus. And he addresses both life and doctrine. Now, I don't know about you, but it's a lot easier for me to talk about doctrine than my life. It's a lot easier for me to talk about what's happening in my church than my life, or your church than my life, or our denomination than my life. But Paul here has the temerity to talk to Timothy about his personal life because it's absolutely essential. You see, we, we, we don't have a ministry if we are not spiritually healthy. One of the things they tell you when you uh, get on a, uh, an airplane is that you need to put your oxygen mask on first before you take care of other people. And you could hear those, that, that instruction and think to yourself, well, that, that seems a bit self-serving, doesn't it? Well, of course not if you think about it. You, you can't save anyone if you're dead. You, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first. You need to do self-care if you're going to care for other people. And we minister best out of a healthy heart. We don't minister best out of gifting or effort, but out of health. And that is why the pastoral epistles are loaded with with exhortations about watching both our life and our doctrine. In fact, the pastoral qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 7 include just that. It's a list of character qualities about life and then the ability to teach. On down in chapter 3, regarding the church in general, he says, I've given you these instructions so that people may know how to behave in the household of God, life. And then he calls the church the pillar and buttress of truth, doctrine. And so then the the leader of the church is obviously to lead out in these things, to, to, to set an example of both sound doctrine and healthy living. Now, the beginning of chapter 4 begins with a particular type of false teaching, that has corresponding problems uh, in in one's life. The the false teaching that Paul addresses in chapter four, verses one to five is asceticism. There were people in Ephesus who were denying uh, pleasures given by God, pleasures that they uh, did not necessarily need to deny, and they were doing this for some religious goal. And while Christians are called to abstain from sin, we are not called to live as ascetics. They denied God's good gifts. And some of those included particular foods and marriage. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited that you can be a Christian and eat steak and get married. Right? Those are good gifts to to thank God for. And Paul says that this particular false teaching is demonic in origin, verse 1, chapter 4. And then it is spread through human wickedness. It looks very godly and very pious. So he tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 4, and verse 5, to reject this asceticism and instead be grateful, be biblical, be prayerful regarding God's gifts. We should thank God today that we have taste buds to enjoy honey and coffee and guacamole 
and chocolate and fall weather and books and art. These are good gifts from our good God. And we should thank God that we are not saved by rule keeping, but by the precious blood of Jesus. That's one type of false teaching and that's one type of false teacher. And our day is no different than Timothy's, though we may not be dealing with a lot of asceticism. We have our own false teachings that are being promoted. And this is a good reminder for us that, that we are not the only religion that has preachers. We're not the only religion that sends missionaries. What makes our preaching unique and what makes our sending of missionaries unique is what we preach. It's what we send our missionaries with. Well, with that in view now, there are five exhortations I'd like to point out in this particular passage from verses 6 to 16. The first comes from that first paragraph, verses 6 to 10, and he tells Timothy to exercise for godliness passionately. Now, it's quite interesting, after talking about the rigor of self-denial of the ascetics, he doesn't tell Timothy to be passive and to be lazy. There's actually an exhortation here to discipline, right? If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. So there's a difference, obviously, in spiritual discipline and asceticism or legalism. Spiritual discipline is God-centered. It's motivated by love, by gratitude. It's empowered by the Spirit. It's overflowing with awe. That's at the root of this word godliness is a reverence for God. We love our God, therefore we want to grow in godliness. Legalism, however, is man-centered. It's motivated by earning, by works-based righteousness. Now, this word for godliness appears 15 times in the New Testament, 13 in the pastoral epistles. If there's one thing that Paul is, is emphasizing over and over again and again in the pastorals, it's that those who are in ministry leadership should pursue godliness. Nine of those 13 are right here in 1 Timothy. So what does it mean to exercise for godliness? Well, I'm glad you asked. Just like in a fitness plan, you need a good diet and you need good discipline or good exercises, that's what's emphasized. First, a healthy diet, and then second, healthy discipline. So the diet, you see it there in verse 16. <clears throat> Being trained in the words of faith, if you're holding a CSB, it, I think it says nourished, which is a better translation. He, he is saying here that you should, you should be nourished on that which you are nourishing others with, which is often a big challenge in ministry. He tells Timothy to avoid spiritual junk food, right? Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. How many of you know there's a lot of things you could, you could fill your mind and heart with? That's just silly. In the, the pastorals, we read of asceticism, foolish controversies, myths, genealogies, extra-biblical teaching, uh, prosperity theology, empty rituals. And Paul's telling Timothy here, hey, Train yourself, nourish yourself in, in these things. Verse 6, that is, that which I've passed on to you. In the words of the faith, of the good doctrine. Have a healthy diet. So the question is, what are you consuming? That's part of our challenge when it comes to physical fitness, isn't it? It's, it's often what we're eating. It's what we're consuming that is hurting us. Now, the second piece in verse 7 is the discipline, right? He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silliness, but train yourself for godliness. Some of you perhaps are doing P90X. This is, 
or T25. This is Paul's T47. To, to, uh, <clears throat> thank you, to exercise for godliness. <clears throat> it was a courtesy laugh. Um, gumnazo, that's the word here, word from which we get the word gymnasium or gymnastics. It implies spiritual sweat. You don't just passively become godly. You, you, are, you are to pursue godliness. Now we know from Titus and elsewhere that it is also by God's sovereign grace that we are growing in godliness. Grace is training us, Paul says, to renounce ungodliness, right? And we read in Philippians 2 that God is at work in us to both will and to work according to his good pleasure. But here in this text, the, the emphasis is on your responsibility. You are to train for godliness. It's by his grace that you can renounce ungodliness and pursue godliness. Well, what are the exercises involved in this regimen? Well, the only thing that's actually mentioned in this verse is reading and hearing the Word of God. You need a good discipline of reading the Bible, of praying the Bible, of singing the Bible, of humbly putting yourself under the Bible, the means by which God conforms us to the image of Jesus. Well, what are the benefits of that kind of discipline? Verse 8, he says, while bodily training is of some value, you might just underline, by the way, some, because you should do it, right? Some of you might ought to do a little more. I don't know. Um, but godliness, godliness is of value in every way. Now, in Ephesus, they love their sportsmen. They love their athletics. And we're in a culture that loves their athletics. And there are people who love their workout programs. There is some value, but don't, don't overemphasize it. Don't idolize it. What we should be most focused on is godliness because it holds the promise of life in this life and the life to come. Now, verse 9, he says, this is a, a trustworthy saying that's deserving of full acceptance, which can either go with verse 10 or verse 8. I think it goes with verse 8. Most commentators agree with me, and I'm glad they do. Um, and, and, which is because, and, and uh, most people make this argument because it seems more proverbial, that idea that godliness is of value in every way. Regardless, he moves to verse 10 and he tells us who is behind this promise. Life now and life to come. How do you know that those benefits are yours? Well, who, here's who is behind those promises. For this end we toil and strive in our ministry as we exercise for godliness because we have set our hope on the living God. If your hope is in the living God, if your hope is in Jesus Christ, the living Lord, you have the promise of life now and the life to come. He is the savior of all people, all kinds of people, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, especially those who believe. That is, you cannot be saved unless you believe. This promise is enjoyed by those who believe. So, my friends, have you perhaps taken a casual approach to godliness? If so, hear this paragraph this morning to get back in the gym and train yourself. Now, number two, Paul says in verses 11 and 12, a good servant of Christ Jesus, you need to exemplify your teaching personally. Exercise for godliness passionately. Exemplify your teaching personally. Verse 11 is a heading phrase for what is to follow in the paragraph that introduces us to the subject, which is teaching. Now we get all kinds of stuff about teaching. 
So command and teach these things. These things appears eight times in the pastorals. It refers to that which has been passed on, apostolic doctrine, the gospel. Command them and teach them. But before Paul gets around to telling Timothy how to teach them in verse 13, he tells him first to exemplify his teaching. And that is very instructive itself, I think. So here we go. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. You see, in the old days, people used to be critical of the youth. Timothy was apparently looked down upon because he was a youngster. Most scholars tell us that he was probably in his 30s. It's a good question, right? What, what constitutes still being young? It's a question I find myself asking. Um, Irenaeus, the church father, said one could be young up to 40. So I, I, I have now earned the right to be called an old man and talk down on all you youngsters out there who are under 40. Some of you in this room are rolling your eyes at me. Luke calls Paul uh, young in Acts 7:38, who would have been around the same age as Timothy here. So the point is, though, Timothy has been called to a position beyond his years. And some of you, too, will be in churches where you are young, and this is very instructive. You can imagine that what Timothy would have been going through. The human condition hasn't changed, has it? People could have been jealous of Timothy because he was promoted to leadership and they reacted critically as a result. There is a world of jealousy in ministry. It is a work of the flesh and not a fruit of the spirit. They could have doubted his own capability. He doesn't know what he's doing. They could, they, this surely involved a lack of respect and you're gonna deal with this if you're a younger pastor. This happens all the time. I had a lady in my first church. I was 27 years old. She refused to shake my hand. And one day she looked at me and she said, I have socks older than you. Yeah, they're a real blessing. <laughs> now, there have been young leaders throughout history. You're not an anomaly. Spurgeon was young. Edwards was young. Calvin was young. H.B. Charles was like, what, 18, 19 years old. And besides this, 43% of the world is under 25. So we need young leaders. The question is, how do you respond as a young leader? And what is said next in verse 12 is this. You do exactly the opposite of what you really want to do. You do the opposite of what your flesh wants to do. What does your flesh want to do? You want to defend yourself. You want to respond in perhaps an aggressive tone or manner. You want to tweet up a storm. You want to fight or flight. But notice the but here. But, this is what you do. Set the believers an example. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You have an opportunity when you are being criticized to set the believers an example. It's an opportunity to put the gospel on display. You see, the point is this. People will be less likely to despise your youth if they admire your example. And to be sure, there will still be people who despise your youth, but they will be less likely to despise your youth if they admire your example. The way you overcome this challenge, Paul is telling Timothy here, and us, is by maturity. 
This is Christian Leadership 101. Leadership is not lordship. It's setting an example and inviting other people to follow you. It's precisely what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, right? Do not be domineering over those in your charge, but set the believers an example. And Jesus revolutionized the world with this model of servant leadership. He just didn't bark orders at the disciples. He says, come follow me. He didn't just teach them to pray. They watched him pray. The Pharisees, in contrast, were horrible examples, demanding of people things that were not biblical and things they weren't even doing themselves. Now, here's the deal. Every leader is actually leading by example, whether one realizes it or not. The question is, what kind of example are we setting? Well, Paul gives us a list here of, 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 of word and deed graces that we should consider. It's not an exhaustive list, but I think they're very helpful. And they're probably geared toward, again, a younger person, knowing our own condition. And these characteristics, these virtues are made possible because of our union with Jesus Christ. And they're supercharged by our communion with Jesus Christ, by training for godliness. So speech. So we are to avoid falsehood, Scripture tells us, anger, bitterness, abusive speech, filthy talk. Instead, let your words be filled with encouragement, words of grace, tenderness, and thanksgiving. This will be the real test. This was the test for me when I, when I went to my first pastor. I was ready to debate the Trinity, the inspiration of Scripture, the resurrection, and the only problem is no one wanted to talk about those things. But how will you respond when you're criticized, attacked, gossiped about, slandered? Will you revile in return? Or will you follow the way of Jesus and fall on the sword? Will you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? Conduct, that is, putting off your old self, putting on this new creation that God has made you. What would people learn from you if they lived with you? Would you be like a magnet drawing them to Jesus? Would it inspire faithfulness if they watch you? Set a believer as an example in love. This is throughout the New Testament, right? Above all, put on love, Paul says in Colossians 3. Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ has loved you. 1 Corinthians 16, let all that you do be done in love. Love for neighbor, love for church, love for the lost. Let all that you do be done in love. Are you known for warmth and hospitality and compassion? I love what Spurgeon says in the lectures. He says, I love a minister whose face invites me to make him my friend. On whose doorstep you read, welcome, not beware of dog. Give me the man around whom the children come. An individual who doesn't have a friendly, cheerful manner about him and better be an undertaker and bury the dead for he will never succeed in influencing the living. A man must have a great heart if he is to have a great congregation. When a man has a large, loving heart, men go to him as ships to a haven. Such a man is hearty in private as well as in public. May God make us those kinds of people. You see, my friend, becoming an expositor and a pastor theologian shouldn't turn you into an angry pit bull. It's actually possible to be an expositor and gracious, to love theology and be humble. 
That's what our doctrine should be doing to us. And if you're a younger pastor and you're going to be a pastor and you're going to be young, one of the ways you're going to gain respect from other people is by loving them. Forgiving those who wound you. Asking for forgiveness when you wound them because you will. Opening your home to people. Being generous and warm and accessible. Faith. Set the believers an example in faith that you're, you're trusting God. Set an example in purity, that you're not hiding anything. My friends, you know this really well. There are so many crazy ideas about pastors and so many negative ideas. I I was in England not long ago, and the waitress was coming around, and she was refilling our our water and and just uh, bringing us our dishes, and we were having a nice little cordial conversation, and eventually she said, well, what are you doing in England? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. Conversation over. I might as well have said, I kill puppies. That would have carried the conversation over on. But as soon as I said, I'm a pastor, done. Now, why is that? Well, it's true. It's sometimes because of our gospel. And if they stumble over that, that's on them. But sometimes it's not because of what we're preaching. It's because of what they're seeing. And that's on us. Set the believers an example. Thirdly, he tells Timothy here something about preaching and teaching. Expound the scriptures publicly. You see, my friends, you will show people what you believe about the Bible by how you use the Bible. Not merely by what you say about the Bible. And I want people to be convinced of scripture's authority, of its sufficiency, of its Christocentricity. I find myself defending all three of these things all the time. And one of the ways we'll cultivate such a people that embraces biblical authority, sufficiency, and the redemptive nature of the scriptures is by the the way we handle it in corporate worship. And so we have here in verse 13 a really important verse, I think, for understanding the preaching event in corporate worship because I think this is in the context of the assembly. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now notice here, verse 13 comes right after verse 12. Timothy's young. He's being attacked. He's being criticized. What should he be doing? Well, first of all, he should be setting an example. Second of all, he should expound the Bible. Young person going into a church, do those two things. Love people well and teach the Bible. I mean, why should they listen to the young guy? Notice verse 13. It's because he's got the Bible. It doesn't come from your experience. You don't have any. It doesn't come from how many books you've written. You, if you're a student, maybe you've written some books. I don't want to be condescending as Bruce uses the, the term. But, but you probably haven't written any books. Why should they listen to you? It's because you've got the Bible. And to rightly interpret and, and preach the Bible to people then puts them under obligation to God. So, Timothy, what should you be doing? Well, here's the pattern. Stand up, read the Bible. Exhort and teach people from the Bible. It's not that hard. But it's so rare. 
He uses this word anagnosis, uh, the public reading of Scripture. Scripture is actually supplied here. It's, it's implied from the rest of the New Testament. But this, this word uh, was used with the public reading of wills, of petition, of reports. It's used in Nehemiah 8 when Ezra reads aloud. Luke 4 when Jesus reads in the synagogue. Acts 13, Acts 15 as they're reading in the Sabbath. And the synagogue practice was then taken over by Christians as they assembled for corporate worship. The apostles' letters were included in those readings. We know that from uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, Colossians 4. And Paul clearly has in mind here the public reading and exposition of that which was just read. This is our historical pattern that you and I have been given. And we know from the sermons and acts that the early Christians viewed all Scripture as Christian Scripture. They got this from Jesus who said that you search the scriptures to the religious leaders, thinking that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that bear witness about me. If you believe Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. You don't really even understand Moses because Moses wrote about me. There is a messianic wind that blows through the pages of the God-breathed Bible. We see it in theme development, types, shadows, the overarching storyline. This is the pattern. To explain the Bible and to point people to Jesus and do it until you die. You know, sometimes pictures are worth a thousand words, and I, I stumbled on one the other day. This illustration will make Stephen Ecker very happy. Lucas Cronach was the, you might say, artist of the Protestant Reformation. And if you go to St. Mary's Church today, you can uh, see a number of paintings from Cronach, one of like the Lord's Supper and, uh, you know, different things going on in church, and one is of Luther preaching. And it's a beautiful summary, I think, of what we ought to be doing. We have the, the pictures up on the screen. First picture here is a, is a picture of, of Luther in St. Mary's Church, uh, it, it pictured here, pointing people to Jesus from the Bible. And you notice that all the people are looking at the cross. The next picture shows Luther with a finger on the text and pointing people to the cross. And all the people, next picture, shows them looking if you span out, you can see it. Looking at the cross and not at their world-famous preacher. And then there's this one little girl. I love this little spot here. She's looking at you, inviting you to look to the cross. And that's what's happening in corporate worship, right? Finger on the text, pointing people to Jesus, all eyes on Jesus. Not like Tupac, all eyes on me, but all eyes on Jesus. And then the people are looking at the world saying, will you look at Jesus too? Well, Luther had his flaws for sure, but the Lord used him to recover the gospel, defend the gospel, proclaim it in a context that was saturated with false teaching. And that's what Timothy's in and that's what we're in. And we need an army of faithful expositors today in this post-Christian, pluralistic, relativistic, spiritually confused culture. We need an army of them who will love people, explain the Bible, and point people to Jesus. We don't need 20 more sensational conference speakers. We're good. We need millions, I mean millions, of faithful ministers who will saturate the nations with sound doctrine. This is hard work. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, you're laboring like an ox doing this work. But it's a privilege. It is a privilege. Number four, I move quickly. He tells Timothy here to exhibit ministerial growth progressively. Progressively. So he says here to Timothy, not only should they see your example, but there's something else the people ought to see. See your example. They're going to see you teaching the Bible. They should see progress. 
That's one of the ways they're going to tolerate you. <laughs> if they're gracious. Is that they're patient and they see progress. He says, do not neglect, neglect the gift you have. The gift here is generic. It, it, uh, I would imagine just refers to that, the, the, the gift of teaching. To do that which Timothy's been called to do. Because God gifts us to do the things he's called us to do. Don't neglect it. There seems to be some temptation here for Timothy to withdraw and not exercise his gift. Don't neglect it, but use it. Remember, your gift is for the good of the church. It's not for you. Don't hold back your gifts. Your gift is, is to bless the church, which the, was given you by prophecy. There seems to be some utterance spoken over Timothy, perhaps the way uh, we read in, in Acts 13 when Paul and Barnabas were singled out, where hands were also laid upon them before they went out. He mentions here also the laying on of hands from the council of the elders. That is the, the leadership. They're affirming your gifts. That's also very important, isn't it? And then he tells them in verse 15, practice these things. I love how practical this is. How do you get better at preaching and teaching? Preach and teach a lot. It's going to take you a long time. I was telling a church planner the other day, man, don't even really stress. I mean, work hard in your sermons, but listen, in 10 years, you won't want to preach any of your sermons. I don't want to preach any of my first sermons. I, I'm, I hope they're not out there. You can grow, right? He says, immerse yourself in them. Let, let them see your progress. I remember going up to uh, John Piper and I was telling him I was writing my dissertation on him. And his first words back to me was, please take recent sermons. Please take recent sermons. That made me feel really good. Let them see that you're becoming more clear. You're more concise. You have better application. You're addressing the heart better. That you can actually preach from the Old Testament. By the way, there's a great new book called Progress in the Pulpit by the Jedi Master himself, Jim Shaddix. Well, this is, this is a wonderful word to us, and it's really a word of grace, isn't it? It's a reminder to us who are in ministry that we have not arrived. Let them see your progress. And it's a word to the church to say, please be patient with us. Let them see your progress. There's still more for us to learn, my friends. More for us to do. More room to grow, so we would press on in this good work. Again from Spurgeon. He says, Know Jesus, sit at his feet, consider his nature, his work, his sufferings, his glory, rejoice in his presence, commune with him from day to day. To know Christ is to understand the most excellent of sciences. You cannot fail to be wise if you commune with wisdom. You cannot miss strength if you have fellowship with the mighty Son of God. Saints of 60 years experience who have walked with him every day think they know him, but they're only beginners yet. We're only beginners, my friends. Let's never forget it. Let's stay hungry. Last exhortation. He tells Timothy to examine your life and teaching persistently. Here is a great warning to us, and it's a great summary of the pastorals, isn't it? To watch your life and doctrine. God warns us because he loves us. You warn your kids because you love them. And God gives us a sober warning here because he loves us and he loves his church. Really, three exhortations are bound up in verse 16. First, watch your life. Second, watch your teaching. And then third, don't miss the third one, persist in this. That is to say, don't ever stop watching your life. 
and doctrine. We don't like this. We don't like examinations. My first PhD seminar was with Dr. Keithley. I was so nervous, we picked our topic, and I said, Dr. Keithley, I'd like to write on the destiny of those who've never heard the gospel. And he said, that's great, Tony, that's what I wrote my dissertation on. I'd like to reconsider. No, I think you should do that. As I am presenting this paper, and I'm sweaty, I'm nervous, he is writing so much with a red pen that the pen explodes. It goes all over his arm. He has to leave the room to wash his arm off. I'm like, I'm done, I'm done, man. Nobody likes evaluation, but this is for our good. This is for the people's good. And what is it that you should be evaluating? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. I used to also be very ambitious when I was in my 30s. Now I'm 40. I just want to live 10 more years. And I, it's, it's, it's become very clear to me in all seriousness. The ambition is to finish well. I was talking to a friend who is well-known. You would know him if I mentioned his name. And he, he succeeded big time in what we would consider success in the church world. And he's a young guy. Early 40s now. And he was, he was talking to me and he says, Tony, I just don't know what, this was a couple years ago, what's the next hill for me to take? And this past summer we were together <clears throat> in light of a lot of things that went on. And he says, faithfulness is the hill. There is no other hill. Faithfulness to Jesus and not success in the eyes of people. That's the hill. Notice, he doesn't exhort Timothy to climb some denominational ladder, to play politics, or to use the church in Ephesus as some stepping stool. No, his words are pure and better and higher. They are, be faithful. Watch your life, watch your doctrine, and persist in this. And the need regarding your life is not just for more accountability, though we can all use that. Watch your affections. Guard your heart. We live out of the overflow of that heart. What's at stake? He says, you save yourself and your hearers. Of course, Paul doesn't mean that Timothy can save himself. We know Jesus alone does that, but the the emphasis here is on Christian endurance, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For the hearers, God has ordained that people be saved through the preaching of the word, through the hearing of the word, and they grow by that same word. And so Timothy is called here to persevere in godliness and teaching sound doctrine. And if he does, he will save his hearers from the dangers of false teaching, which will cause some people to make shipwreck of their faith. At the center of our glorious salvation is Jesus Christ, who stands behind all of this, our great mediator. That's who we stay faithful to, and that's who we keep pointing people to. Let's today, my friends, see him as our source of hope, as our perfect, perfect example of godliness, who died on behalf of those who were ungodly, that we may be declared righteous and now have power to pursue godliness and to be faithful in our ministry of teaching. Let's keep pointing people to Jesus, both in our public ministry and in our personal example, until we see him. And on that day, you will be most glad you did. Let's pray together. Father, keep us faithful.
Keep our eyes fixed on you. Wean us off the pleasures of this world and give us an ever-increasing joy in the Lord Jesus. Guard our hearts, even now as we sing to you, as we go about this day in classes, at our workplace, wherever we are, we pray that you would inflame our hearts afresh for the beauty of Jesus Christ, who's worthy of all of it. In his name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.